Capital of the world. It's the TC Martin Show. It is showtime, baby. Here we go. It's time to get your daily prescription from the doctor, TC Martin. Going to be fielded by Lorenzo Neal at the 25. Yeah, Pitches it, it back to Wycheck. He throws it across the field to Dyson. He's got something. 30, He's got 40, something. 50, He's got 40, it. 40, He's got it. 20, 10, He's got it. Doctor is now in. A good Thursday to you, TC Martin, Ballpark, VGK Frank. Yeah, making it happen for you on this Thursday. Is getting ready to approach the weekend. Lovely times here. Numchuck on the other side of the glass. And today we talk a little bit more NFL draft. We are one week away from the draft. We'll really be tightening it up, looking hard at it next week. But, uh, just getting the thoughts of our draft guru, college football guru, football guru for that matter. Trevor Maddich will join us today from ESPN. And he, uh, he's been uh, hunkered down, uh, doing all of his homework, getting ready for the draft. Like we said, a week from today. And uh, we will talk about some of the top picks, talk about some of the top positions. So Trevor Maddich will join us today. Looking forward to that. And like we touched on yesterday with Steve Berline, the quarterback class, a pretty good one. And the draft is always more interesting when you have a good quarterback crop. I don't know how good this is. I know a lot of the so-called uh, draft experts think this is a excellent one. I wouldn't go that far. But depending on which mock drafts you look at, quarterbacks could be going one, two, and three. Some people say six quarterbacks will go in round one. I'm not sure about any of that. But, uh, again, the hype is good. Look forward to the draft next week. And again, uh, we'll start breaking it down, and we'll start looking at the Raiders aspect uh, as well, too. So uh, let the hype begin. Well, I'm going to say a potentially good quarterback draft because we don't know. You don't know how they're going to pan out. You know, Uh, There could be six in the first round. Maybe all six become decent NFLers. Maybe one or two become a superstar. Maybe somebody that's not even in the top six that's, you know, a late developer comes out and becomes a great quarterback down the road or whatever. The one thing about the draft, it's not an exact science. And we've seen that year after year after year after year. But every year, fans get up for it. The media gets up for it. TV tells you it's the greatest thing in the world. Can't miss event. Fan bases come up and there's going to be carrying signs and wearing their jerseys and getting ready. And they're going to boo selections that they don't know that might be a great pick. They're going to cheer selections that might end up being garbage picks. And four years from now, when we actually know how the pick turned right. out, no one's going to remember it. There you go. Yep. And that's what you can do. You, dra- you judge a draft about three to four years down the road. That's how you judge it. So no one wins the draft on draft night or the day after. Though every single know. analyst out there will have their grades for the next day. Yeah. This team got an A because yeah. they did what I said they should. Yeah. This team gets an F because yeah. they didn't do what I said I should, that, that, that I said they right. should. And, and all you can do with that is, okay, did you – uh, get the guys that you think can help your ball club immediately. Did you uh, address those positions that will help that club? 
And, and that's all you can do at this point in time until you get him to training camp, until you get him in, in preseason games and, and see what they do during the course of not just this season, but seasons to come. That's how you judge uh, a, a draft. But it is exciting. I will admit, uh, you know, the NFL draft, the NBA draft have always been two of my favorite nights to watch. Now, obviously, the NFL, it's spread over three nights. But, you know, the the first round, first, second round, okay, that is very interesting. There's some intrigue. And like you said, for all the things that you said, you know, people getting excited. Okay, this guy's coming coming to your team. What's this going to look like? Then, of course, you have the drama of maybe the guy's dropping down. And that always brings some added excitement as well, too. So they do a fantastic job from a broadcasting perspective of of hyping it up and then, again, delivering a little bit of the drama. And I think it always has added to the draft when you can have it in a location where fans can come in. I mean, it was at Radio City Music Hall in New York City for so many years. And, you know, just when the Jets or the Giants would draft, I mean, like you said, you, you were going to get the booze, you're going to get the cat calls, you're going to get people going crazy. And there are other fan bases that are represented as well, too. But, you know, because New York was the hub, and then, of course, you had those two teams. And for the most part, those two teams are drafting pretty high, too, <laughs> at least in, in, in recent years. Frequently, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I enjoy it. So we'll see. But, you know, again, you know, there's been a lot of hype for this over the last three or four weeks leading up to it. The draft is still it's still a week away. So I don't like to get too wrapped up into it but again you know having steve berline on yesterday who just happens to be doing a show with cbs says okay let's get steve and some early thoughts we'll have him back on next week and then of course trevor maddich he's you know, he's like mel kuyper i mean dives into this uh, and probably knows the college game is good or, or better than anybody because not only does you know trevor study this stuff but he, but he broadcasts you know these games and part of the espn college you know broadcasting crew all year long so anytime we can tap into trevor uh, I love doing it, and we'll do that uh, a little bit later on today. Uh, Chuck Esposito will join us from, from Sunset Station next hour as well, too. Talk to Chuck uh, regarding the betting side of it. We'll talk some VGK and the Golden Knights win again last night. And clinch the playoff spot. And everybody's yeah. making a gigantic deal out of this. Oh. And did anybody think <laughs> they weren't clinching? A, we knew they were going to the playoffs. Oh. It's are they going to be the number one seed? That is the question. It's pretty much been the question since before the season started. Wasn't his champagne popped? I I don't know. I hope not. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, maybe from the standpoint, and, and Marsha Sol, who had a great game last night, kind of touched on it. He's like, look, uh, this is our fourth time to the playoffs. How many years have been around? Four? Yeah. So, you know, this is the most spoiled fan base in sports, without a doubt, the Vegas Golden Knights fans. I don't think that a lot of the fans, I'm not going to say the majority, but I'm not sure that a lot of the fans, a huge percentage, realize how fortunate they are and how unusual. It's not supposed to be this easy. You went to the Stanley Cup final year one, four seasons, four times to the playoffs now. You know, I mean, they've got something really magical and good here, and half of this fan base seems like they're upset if they don't win the whole damn thing. It's amazing what this team has accomplished, and there's no reason to believe that, especially in this division, which without Minnesota and Colorado next year will actually probably be worse, shouldn't continue to make playoff run after playoff run after playoff run for a long time down the road. Yeah, it's a great spot to be in, and it is funny because, again, when the team got here, there wasn't a, let's be honest, there wasn't a a big-time local hockey fan base. 
and people thought it was cool. We got a new arena going up. Okay, well let's let's learn this game. Let's let's check this out. Oh, Golden Knights, and there's a lot of pomp and circumstance. And again, I mean, you didn't know the players. Again, players came from all. You know, they were like the misfits. Like they, they were named. They Mark were all, they were all discarded from other teams. Okay, yeah. let's uh, let's see what happens. I think people took an approach here of like, well, we really not really into hockey, but you know, it's getting a lot of hype. Let's embrace this. Let's see where it goes. And like I said, next thing you know, it's victory after victory after victory, and a lot of surprising victories. And then you set the bar so high. You get a, a spoiled fan base. And that's exactly what happened going back 30, 40 years ago with UNLV. They got spoiled big time. Yeah, and, and you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, I don't want to say funny, but it is kind of funny to me a little bit how you mentioned the fact about, yeah, they were the, they were the misfits, you know. Marc-Andre Fleur was the one player that people knew that maybe weren't diehard hockey fans. Because he had had success in Pittsburgh. But he was the backup goalie in Pittsburgh. That's why he was, a, he was available here. Then the team comes in and they do what they've done here. And now everybody's a hockey fan. I literally remember going to places. Local bars, lo- local watering halls, even some casino restaurants or whatever like that. When you go in and you say, can, uh, can you change the channel there? And being told, I'll put anything on but hockey. You couldn't get a hockey game on even if you asked Literally in some places. Oh, yeah. Now you can't go to a place where the Golden Knights game is not on TV. That is number one priority, unless they're showing a UFC pay-per-view or something like that that people literally paid to come and see. And even then, a couple TVs still have the Golden Knights games on. The complete 180 that this city has done for hockey is amazing. And there's still a lot of people that don't know the rules and don't know what's going on in that, but they're all diehard Golden Knights fans. Mm -hmm. But it's amazing how much it has changed that you literally couldn't get a game put on a local place, and now that's all they want to talk about. And there's an AHL team out here for crying out loud as well. The the town that's only a basketball town and hockey will never work has an NHL and an AHL team. That's pretty crazy. How much of it, though, is because of the victories that came in year one and and going to the Stanley Cup? A ton. You know, and I guess you could almost make the argument. I mean, again, we were there living it as it unfolded, being there, uh, you know, there in Toshiba Plaza when Bill Foley announced the name, the colors, and all that sort of thing. There was a lot of hype back then. So it wasn't like it kind of snuck up on people. There was... There was a lot of hype and anticipation. And going back to what you said about not being able to really find a hockey game, like say you go to a sports book or whatever, I mean, obviously, it's Vegas. You have a lot, a lot of transplanted people. There was a small hockey base. And if you go to a sports book, you, you would see some hockey games maybe tucked over to the side, but it was never a focal point. Yeah, in a sports but, book, yes, but in bars, I literally was bars, told before. You're right. You're right. I was literally yeah. told by bartenders, I'll yeah. put on anything but hockey. Right. Right. You want a soccer game? You got it. You want a baseball right. game? You got it. You want spike ball? You got it. I'm not putting on a hockey game. Spike ball? No one's putting <laughs> on spike ball. <laughs> but the way year one unfolded where it was victory after victory and there were some losses mixed in there, it, you know, again, you can say that people love winners, and, and, and I get that. We talked about, I remember this, you know, being on the air in year one. It was like, this is the honeymoon period. 
And you're going to have the honeymoon period no matter what they do. You know, barring they come up with a, a season is like 10 and 72 or something like that, which some people thought, oh, maybe that could happen. Yeah, bar, there, there was you know? some, one of the reporters in the RJ said that they wouldn't yeah. win 20 could, games. Yeah, I think they had 20 19. And 62. Yeah. I think 19 was, was yeah. the lowest total. Yeah. And I think the highest total was like around 30. But I think what, what got people involved was when you went to a game. And again, remember, they sold out the season tickets almost immediately. So there was that thirst. And how many of those people were really hockey fans? I'd probably say maybe 20%, maybe diehard hockey fans. And maybe maybe a little bit more than that, but, okay. but, but definitely. But I, I, but I agree with you. Yeah, 20, yeah, around 25%. Right? Okay. A, a lot of people bought them right. as investments. They bought, I know right. a ton of people that bought them and said, all right, I'm going to sell the Kings games, the Rangers games, the original six games and that. And then, yeah, I'll, I'll go to see Ottawa. I'll go to see Minnesota or teams that yeah. aren't as popular, don't have that fan base. Because the tickets are going to more than pay for themselves, and I'm still going to see Vegas's first professional major league franchise. And I hate when people just say first professional franchise because that's a total disrespect to the Aviators mm-hmm. slash Stars slash Fifty Ones and some other franchises out here. But they are the first major league professional franchise. And of course, we all remember they had the Vegas Wants Hockey, they had the the groups, they had the meetings and that. Gary Bettman, I don't think, ever thought Vegas was getting hockey. When he said, yeah, okay, you don't even have a stadium. Go get me 10,000 signatures of people willing to put down money for a team that doesn't exist and a building that doesn't exist, and we'll talk. Figuring that'll shut them up because it'll never happen. And bang, they have like twelve or 13,000 before you can blink an eye. And all of a sudden, Bettman in the NHL turned around and looked and said, Wait a second. Maybe they are serious yeah. about wanting hockey. Now he loves the town. Right, right. Maybe there's something there. And you know, to your point about people buying the tickets as investments, I know, for example, Double B would talk about this all the time. In his section, he said he never saw the same people sitting in the seats to his left. There were there were four seats there, and he said those people never came to a game. And again, when you're a season ticket holder at any sport, uh, any team, you know the people around you. And that's part of the the allure of getting season tickets and you renewing them. You become a community. Them. Yeah, renewing them year after year with those same guys. Hey, you're going to get your tickets, right? You got yours, this and that. And that's why Double B loves going to get I mean, he loves hockey. There's no doubt about it. But just seeing those guys, you know, that you know you're going to see them maybe, you know, once or twice a week or, you know, again, you're going to get together and you're going to see them yeah, maybe it's, six it's, times, seven times a month or whatever. It's, it's a beautiful thing. But he said, really irritating that you've got visiting team Jersey people that are that are wearing the visiting team jerseys and the people are just selling. He goes, you know, that just it, it kind of ruins it. And that was, I don't want to say throughout the arena, but different sections had that that same effect. But then I think you know as they started to win, and then you, you saw the fan base you know grow. Then you saw the waiting list grow. That yeah, you know people have bought into it. I still don't think this is the most knowledgeable hockey town for fans. I, I still don't think that. 100% you're right about that. Yeah. They are not. But where the allure is, is what they did. And I give Johnny Greco all the you know the compliments needed. And he was the, the original entertainment director and made this thing a spectacle to go to. 
I mean, we've all been to various sporting events, different NHL arenas, uh, you know, throughout the years. I personally, and I love Chicago Stadium with the Blackhawks back in the day because that was just raw. It was raucous. It was loud from the moment you started singing the national anthem on. You know, again, it was it was a dump, but the seats were uncomfortable. But with the Vegas Golden Knights, it was a spectacle. It was a, as I like to say, a rock concert slash nightclub slash entertainment slash sporting spectacle that people got sucked into. And it was like, wow, when you see members of the media, we, you know, that first year of you know getting their camera phones out and, and, and doing the starting lineups and even before that, I mean, that says something there. You don't see that in other venues. So I think for me, it, it's the way they presented the show, as I like to say, or the games, and then that caught fire. And then, of course, people watching it on TV, they saw that, but people could hardly wait to get the games. So you had that honeymoon period, you win, you get to the playoffs, you win a first-round playoff series, you win another one, you win the, car- the, the conference finals, and now you're appearing in the Stanley Cup. Wow. That honeymoon period has now extended for the next four or five seasons. And to your point, okay, they've stayed good. They stayed relevant. Yeah. Is it still a hockey town? I don't know if it's a hockey town, but you know what? People love going to these games for all those reasons. Well, I don't say I can say it's not a hockey town. When the, the fact that the Silver Knights are also popular. Right. And, and, you know, we were just talking to somebody this afternoon who's got season tickets to the Silver Knights next year. And that building's going to be sold out as well. So if you can sell out in an NHL building and an NHL building, I think you are a hockey town. Now, it still might not be the number one sport. If the NBA comes here or if UNLV became relevant again, maybe it would go back to being a basketball town. I remember first moving out here. Oh, Vegas is a basketball town. They weren't so much a basketball town when the, when the Rebels started losing games and the Thomas and Mack had to block off areas because there wasn't anybody at the arena anymore. It's a winner's town like most cities are. And like you mentioned, the honeymoon period, they got unbelievably fortunate in the fact that they didn't have to just sustain the honeymoon period because they immediately went right to the honeymoon suite. They were in the presidential suite, the Stanley Cup final year one. And now they went from being the Golden Misfits to a favor. You know, remember when they first started out here? What were the two? What were the couple of things we heard? We have a blank slate, and we're going to use it. Well, now they have salary cap problems in that, and they're trying to figure out how to, who to play every night. There's times when they play a game a man down almost every game because if somebody's hurt or whatever, they can't bring other people up. So you know, they don't have that anymore. The other thing was we're not a transplant from any other city, so nobody hates us. The Golden Knights had literally nobody in the country hated the Golden Knights. Now they do. There's people, I, my best friend back in Chicago, he's like, Frank, do you still follow the Golden Knights all the time? Because I got to tell you, dude, I hate them. <laughs> and I hate their fans. And I've talked to people from New York and people mm-hmm. from Canada. There is now a hatred for the Golden Knights, mm-hmm. partly because the team is so good, but mainly from what I hear from most people, it's because of their fans. Because when the fans go, oh, we want the cup so bad, and you got places like Winnipeg who finally won a playoff series yeah. a couple years ago, going way back to their Atlanta days, and other teams that have never got a sniff of the Stanley Cup, and they're, go- and they're going, you guys have been around three years and you're whining and crying and bitching and moaning about never winning a cup? They think the fan base out here, the sense of entitlement and everything else, and like you mentioned, their lack of knowledge, there is now a true disdain 
Maybe hate is too strong of a word, yeah. but some of the people I know, I don't, I'm not sure that it is. There are a lot of people out there and all around the hockey world that cannot stand the Golden Knights. And I don't know that that's necessarily bad because you kind of want that. If everybody's yeah. hating you, it's because you're pretty damn good. It's a form of respect. Yeah, absolutely. And we talk about the Yankees yeah, all the time. I mean, time. I don't it's, hate that team yeah. that you used to do football for because they <laughs> suck all the time. It's the exact opposite. But boy, do I love when they lose. <laughs> <laughs> hater. What a hater. Um, you mentioned uh, another person who we saw today took that exact same attitude that you're just talking about and said, yeah, you know, they've been there before, but, you know, are they going to do again? Because we talked about, hey, Golden Knights, you know, the first team to clinch a playoff spot. Uh, look, look at them go. You know, this could be the year. Yeah, but we've said that before, right? Four years, you have know, made the playoffs. But, yeah, they haven't won anything. Wow. Somebody wow. Said- and, and that was from a, a person not – it was a sports fan, but not real knowledgeable about hockey. But just it's like, Wow. You think it's that easy to win a championship in any sport? And it's like, how about kudos for getting there the first three years? And like you said, having a probably number one, maybe a number one overall seed for the this fourth season. But eh, let's don't get too excited because you know they haven't won it yet. And, and we, That's and, absurd to me. And we heard another person at the same place say the same thing about the Aces. Well, yeah. what if they, it's like you, they went to the final. Yeah. This team, the Golden Knights have been around three years and went to the final your first year. We're talking about teams like Winnipeg who have been around forever. Before Winnipeg, they were down to Atlanta. They'd never won a playoff series before. And, and you know, what do you think, Double B, who's also a Jets fan, what do you think he would do if the Golden Knights can't go to the Stanley Cup final just to have the Jets in the final? Yeah. He'd be like a little kid on Christmas every game. And these people are like, well, we haven't won it. It's like you either win it all or they hate you. I, you know, I, I guess it's say, you know, what, what's the old saying? Second place is just the number one loser or the first loser. I mean, people remember the people that win it and they think nothing else matters, you know. I mean, in Buffalo and Minnesota in the NFL, they're laughing sacks because, well, we've lost four Super Bowls. What, what are we? You went to four Super Bowls. <laughs> You know, and going back to what you said about being a basketball town, okay, let's clarify this. Okay, back when UNLV was the only game in town, and you go back to the 70s, 80s, 90s, even early 2000s, okay? I mean, you got to remember that that's all Las Vegas had. I mean, yes, you had minor league baseball, but. Again, you're, you're going to go to minor league baseball just for entertainment sake. It's not like, hey, we're rallying. We hope we win a championship. That's just not the way minor league sports are constructed, okay? It's, it's a fun outing to go to the game, have a great time, you know, get to know some of these players and watch them leave to go up to the big club. Okay? Yeah, you're That's just che- the nature of it. Yeah, you're kind of okay. cheering that somebody's good enough to leave you that you can say, I saw so-and-so yes. when they were down in Vegas. Because yes. what happens every time a, a team, a AAA team gets to the championship – well, half of their team is gone. That got you. That won all of those games because it got pulled up to the big club. Yeah, the major league college. Yeah, yeah. in, in, in September. Right. Yeah. So, again, it was a basketball town because that was the only sport that was happening here. And when the Rebels were good, yes. So, oh, it's a basketball town. But when you have other sports that come in and can be successful, whether they're winning or not, it does. It, it doesn't mean it's now. It's now it's a football town. 
Now it's a hockey town. Now, now it's a sports town. People always say it's a great boxing town. Okay, well, yes, it's the entertainment capital of the world. It's the boxing capital of the world. Now, uh, over the last, you know, half dozen years, it's turned into the uh, MMA, you know, capital of the world with UFC and everything. And UFC so, coming out here and making their their presence, their, their hub, building their slum. Exactly. I mean, that, that definitely made a huge exactly. impact. So you, what Vegas is, Vegas is turned into a sports mecca, is turned into a sports town. It's an entertainment, you know, a town. It, it, it's all of that. So, you know, for people to say, well, hey, it, it, it's still a basketball town. No. It is a bona fide sports town. When you have, the, you know, the NHL, the um, uh, uh, NFL, the WNBA, and you've got the highest level of minor league of, of, of baseball, I mean, yes, it is a well-rounded, true sports town that you can put up against any other city in, in America. Obviously, no, it's not New York, you know, but again, it's... It's getting like L.A. I mean, how many years did L.A. not have professional football? You know? You know and you had the Lakers. And, 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 they and kinda... you had the Dodgers. And, you know, Kings. Okay. But, again, L.A. just had a different approach. It still has a different approach. A different, you know? Oh, yeah. There's so many things to do. Fans go to the games late. doesn't matter what sport. If it's Lakers, it's Dodgers, it's Clippers. It doesn't matter. Arrive late. Leave early. Because there are things to do. Plain and simple. They'll have big fan bases, okay? You'll have some diehards, but then again, you have the celebrity factor where people are just buying tickets and selling them and that sort of thing. No, is it like an Oakland, the way Oakland was with the Raiders, where they were with the Warriors and that sort of thing? I mean, even when the Warriors were bad, just like the Raiders, I mean, in the A's, I mean, people would go. You know, same thing with the Giants in San Francisco. So, yeah, it's, you can... We're getting to the point where you could say Vegas is like some of those diehard sports, you know, you know, cities. It, it's getting to be like a Chicago. It's getting to be, you know, like some of these other places. It really is. No, absolutely. And again, you know, there, there's all the talk in the world of an NBA team coming out here. I think it will happen. I think eventually Major League Baseball might come out here. And the fact that they can have all these now professional Major League franchises out here and still be the host of these boxing events and MMA events, you know, and other things. And now there's talk of World Cup qualifiers and different things like that. I mean, it is pretty amazing what they've done out here. The one thing that always does scare me, and I'm going to be honest, is you do wonder how deep can they go before, because it's still not the biggest population you know, it's not like you have all the suburbs, like you mentioned, New York and Chicago and other places. They have a lot of places all around them, too. It's not just that inner city area. You know, how much is too much? Can it support baseball and basketball as well? And, yeah, I know some people fly in for different things, but, uh, you know, it's still it, it, it's still a little bit of a risk there. And real quick, too, you mentioned, like, people coming to events. That's what the Aviators were the first season. Every game was sold out. Right. There was a ton of seats available at a lot of those games because a lot of businesses and corporations said, this is a beautiful new ballpark. We're just going to buy the season tickets. They might put them back up for resale right before the game or whatever. And Because I'd have people go to me, well, how come you guys don't have tickets to give away anymore? Because they're sold out. I saw it on TV. There's a, it doesn't mean that everybody goes all the time. Right. If you're a billionaire and you buy minor league baseball tickets, you don't have to go to every game. And, and final thing on this matter, what also helps, and really we're talking about the allure, is having a fantastic facility. 
and you have that with T-Mobile Arena. People wanted to go just to get in the building. Allegiant Stadium. People were saying, wow, the Raiders tickets sold out just like that. But at least I can go to UNLV game so I can get in the building. And now Allegiant Stadium is open for tours. And people And they're are, not cheap. Uh, no, they're not cheap. But people are banging down the door to get in there to see it. You mentioned the ballpark in Summerlin, the Las Vegas ballpark. People going there. Was Cashman Field a great place to go to? It was okay. But, again, you know, it, it wore down. Uh, the field itself was nice and everything. Uh, the, the, the neighborhood, of course, you know, deteriorated over years and that sort of thing. But when they built that ballpark, boom, instantaneously, you got a new audience that was go- that going out there to see games. And they're still and, doing soccer out right, there. Mandalay Bay. When the Aces said, this is going to be our home. And they spent $10 million renovating the Mandalay Bay Arena for that now. So it's people wanting to go. So it helps when you have these dynamite in new facilities. Henderson Gold uh, Silver Knights, like we just talked about, the new facility there in Henderson. People are excited. I mean, again, we talked to guys today. Hey, I got my season tickets because I can't wait to go. And I'm going minor league hockey, really? It's going to be cool to go because of the facility. And we even talked about today, Orleans, yeah, okay, but new facility, I'm in. That's the difference. And think about that. For this city, just within the last, what, four years, the brand new facilities that have popped up or the renovations that have taken place, amazing, unmatched anywhere. So, yeah, Vegas, truly sports town, no doubt about it, and a successful one. And more to come. I agree with you. How about housing you know, four or five major teams in all these sports. It could happen here in the next five, six years. And then you take all the little things, too, the offshoot things, all the Cirque shows and the venues oh. that those places have, and, and the, the Pearl at the Palms and the joints at the Hard Rock and the residencies and the bands and the park over there by T-Mobile. and that, Chelsea you know, at the Cosmopolitan. Yeah, you know, you know all the smaller venues like that. I mean, it, it's it's absolutely incredible. And, again, yeah, these things might not all be 20,000-seat arenas, but, like, is Chelsea has boxing. It has concerts. It has this. And they all do. There's so many options out here. Half the time, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I hear about something, they go, oh, did you see so-and-so was in town? It's like, when when, when is he coming or when are they coming? (laughs) Well, they were here last weekend. There's so much going on, you can't even keep track of it all. Yeah. Beautiful place uh, to live, no doubt about it. Trevor Match is going to join us when we come back. We'll talk NFL news and draft. Uh, We'll get to uh, LeBron James a little bit later on. Talk a little bit more about the Vegas Golden Knights clinching that playoff spot last night with another victory over the lowly San Jose Sharks. And we're going to talk about one of the wildest Major League Baseball games to take place so far this year. Around your door and more of what you're looking for with the Dr. T.C. Martin. All right, the draft coming up next Thursday. Let's talk to our guru. Does a fantastic job, of course, on the college football side with ESPN. He is Mr. Football. It does not matter. The college side, the NFL he is the 15-time Emmy Award winner, Trevor Maddich. What is going on, my friend? Mr. TC, I am doing great. How are you doing? Uh, fair and continued warmer, my man. Very good. I like it. Yes. I always wanted to be a weatherman, you know, in, in my time. You know? Yeah, winds uh, northwesterly 5 to 10 miles per hour. A ray of sunshine coming in today. Highs in the 90s, lows in the 60s right now. Currently, 81 degrees. Not, not the hippy-dippy weatherman. Why am I getting booed for this? Are you kidding me? That was outstanding. 
And I didn't even use my pointer today with my green screen. Trevor knows all about the green screen. Where's it? The I know screen? all about the green screen, but I, I don't know. Listen, I respect the people that do the weather on the news. I really respect them. But I'm a pilot, and we call on the phone every time we want to go on a flight, and we get the weather report. And so I'm wondering, why couldn't I just say that weather report on the air? <laughs> Good point. Right? Good point. So, you know, I, I, again, I, I, I fully acknowledge my ignorance on the, on the subject as to why, you know, why we need to make it so complicated. But, but I guess there's a reason. And so I think you, you could go into that and you could let me know. You could be a professional weather person for a while right. and you can let me know where I'm wrong. Remember, it's a meteorologist. Yeah, and, and you can't have a degree in meteorology and then just say that you're a phone operator. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> okay, well, look, I invented a weather detection device, by the way. Wow, look at this. Yeah, it's a, it's a rope about, a, about eight inches long. You go outside and you hold it up. Hmm. If it moves around, it's windy. If it gets wet, it's raining. How hard could this be, really? You never know what we're going to broach on the show, especially when Trevor Maddich comes. I mean, it could go anywhere from cereal to football to to westerns to now weather. This is beautiful. Well, I know you've been around a lot of athletes in your life, and I, I used to have a friend of mine on the tennis team way back when I played in junior college, and his knees could tell him whenever it was going to rain, and I'll be damned if he wasn't accurate pretty much every single time because of some surgeries he had. So sometimes you just need somebody who's had a couple uh, health problems and that, and they can tell the weather is as good as the meteorologist. Trevor manages our guy <laughs> yeah. for that, right? <laughs> yep. But now, having said that again, let me go back and say I'm not mocking meteorologists. I'm just saying that I, I need more education to fully understand why they they do what they do. So there we go. I just said the sun. I don't sun want to was... get letters from meteorologists because they might be able to change the weather over my house. It will rain for months straight just over my property because they can do stuff like that, and I don't want to take the chance by making a mad at. Sounds like it's raining there because I just gave the weather report here and said it was 81 degrees, and I'm hearing rain there. So it must be close your window, Trev. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll put my weather detection device out there. Let's see how it goes. All right. <laughs> All right, draft time. Uh, how good is this quarterback class? And we know the draft is always more interesting when you have a good quarterback class. Some people are saying, hey, the top three picks could be quarterbacks. We could have six in the first round. I don't know, Trev. I, I'm not seeing it. Uh, how good, in your opinion, my friend, is this QB class? This QB class at the top is epic. I mean epic. It has a chance to be like, what was it, 83 or whatever it was when it was Dan Marino and really? um, Come you know, on. Todd Blackwich and those guys. It, it, John Elway. It has a chance to be. Ken O'Brien, a Sacramento Sports Hall of Famer. Throw him in there too That's now. That's right. UC Davis, yeah. Dixon High School. You ah, got it. All right. <laughs> Go ahead. No, I did this. Listen, the guys at the top. Now, again, you, you never know. Typically, you got about a 50 50 chance of a first round quarterback being your guy long term. You know, getting a second contract and leaving your team to, you know, consistent deep playoff runs. You got about a 50-50 chance. And so, you know, for that reason, I'm not crazy about taking quarterbacks in the top half of the first round anyhow. Not that you don't need elite quarterback play. You do. But you, it's about a 50-50 chance to have a quarterback start for you in the Super Bowl if you draft him in the top half of the first round or if you draft him – outside the top half of the first round, or not in the first round at all, or you don't draft them at all. Somebody else does, right? And so where you get that quarterback is up to is a matter of 
of uh, debate. But you need a good quarterback. This one, though, when you look at the top five guys, Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, Justin Fields, Trey Lance, Mac Jones, put them in whatever order you want. I think those five guys have a very good chance to all be very good quarterbacks. And if I were to drop one of them out of that top tier and put him in the next tier, it would be Trey Lance of North Dakota State. But at the top, this is a, a good-looking group. Okay, so we know that Trevor Lawrence is going to go number one to, to Jacksonville. And then, well, we think so. Well, don't we? I mean, isn't that uh, pretty much stone-cold lock? Uh, I, th- I think it probably will end up that way, but okay. uh, I'm not fully – I wouldn't fully guarantee it until we hear that they've reached a contract. Okay, good point. Okay, so what do the Jets do? I mean, they said goodbye to Sam Darnold. The Jets haven't scored in, in, in the quarterback realm for quite some time. They thought, you know, you know, Mark Sanchez could be that guy. That I mean, they, they went through several guys. What do the Jets do at number two? Do they go quarterback, they go elsewhere, or they trade? Well, what – what they should have done was kept Sam Darnold and then build a team around him. But I think they have enough questions about Darnold that, that they're, they moved him off in part, not just to try to upgrade from him, but I don't think, I think he's going to be a very good quarterback once he gets a, an even chance with the right coach and with the right people around him. I mean, Darnold didn't have a good old line, although now they've built up a, a much improved old line, didn't really have weapons around him. They had Adam Gase as his, uh, as his coach. Adam Gase, most famous recently for being uh, for coaching Ryan Tannehill in Miami, high first-round draft choice. He faded out. They let him go. He goes on to Tennessee and is now playing like one of the best quarterbacks in the league. So Adam Gase goes from Miami up to, up to the Jets, and Sam Donald's got a deal. So uh, I don't want to be too down on Adam Gase just to say in recent years he hasn't had a whole lot of success developing quarterbacks for whatever reason. So, you know, I think that with a new coach, they should have kept um, – Sam Donald, but now that he's gone and they're going to bring in a new guy, uh, okay, uh, what they need to do is give that guy weapons. I mean, they have holes all over that roster, but they've done a good job of filling in the offensive line, especially both tackles. They need more depth there. But now the receiving group in this uh, uh, draft is really, really deep, and they'll be able to get um, really good receivers uh, and to, to pile in around the quarterback. Let's say it is Zach Wilson of BYU. That's what most people think. Once again, it's not necessarily a lock on that one. That's what most people think. What are the advantages of letting Darnold go and bringing in Wilson now and surrounding him with a bunch of young receivers is that now you've got a first-round quarterback five years in his rookie contract that you've got to work with. You've got a bunch of young wide receivers that you can help develop alongside him to go with some of the veterans that they have on the squad now. And then by the time everybody comes into really where they figure out what they're doing in year three or four, they're ready to make a run. I mean, a real run with a lot of chemistry between them. And I think that's a, that's part of the thinking of the jets. So if they take Zach Wilson or whoever at quarterback at number two, uh, what they've got to do then uh, is surround him with weapons and then worry about the defense later. We know that uh, everybody out there next week, some of them already have their mock drafts out there and they're going to make their predictions and things. And then as soon as somebody makes a trade or something like that, all of a sudden everything kind of goes out the window and things can spiral out of control. With so many quarterbacks being projected to be first-round picks, do you think there's going to be a lot of action on the trade block with teams trading picks and people trying to move up in the draft to get a quarterback or some other position maybe more than normal, or do you think it's just going to be business as usual? You know, I think it's possible. And if you think if, if you think of quarterbacks right now, in particular, the thing that I think 
you, you need to think about if you're a team that's going to wait and draft a guy outside of that top four or five is that the rest of the guys have issues. Now, it's not to say that the top four or five, four or five beating Trey Lance, depending on where you put them, <clears throat> the, it's not a matter of, of um, everybody else being bad quarterbacks. But you've got to decide then which problems you're willing to live with, which deficiencies in their game you're willing to develop and hope that they do develop. For example, Kyle Trask of Florida is, is widely considered the next guy, the top of the next tier. And I give him a lot more credit than other people do. They say he had, you know, Kyle Pitts and Kadarius Tony and fantastic receiving talent at Florida, which he did, and that he doesn't really have that strong of an arm, which he doesn't. But one of the reasons there's so many great Kyle Pitts highlights catching the ball from the tight end position is because Trask kept putting it on the perfect spot, even when Pitts was tightly covered. You saw Pitts covered, making spectacular catches over and over. Well, somebody had to drop that ball in there, and if he's that tightly covered so often, he would need to have a perfect throw in order to have a chance at it. Uh, and, and I think under pressure, Pitts has done a really great job. I mean, he, he had to bring his team back from way behind a couple of times when he had his top receivers either opting out or injured and not able to play. So I like him, but you have to deal with the arm strength issue. Can he really drive the ball at the NFL level? Uh, Davis Mills, next kid out of Stanford, he shows signs of and flashes of tremendous ability. But then he'll be maddeningly inaccurate, just amazingly inaccurate. And so is this an accurate quarterback or not? You've got to decide whether you can deal with that. Kellen Mond's another guy people like out of Texas A&M. Now, I think Mon checks all the boxes except for accuracy. You know, he's he's been a starter for a long time. He's played a lot of games in Texas A&M. He's got the leadership ability. He works hard. He's a smart kid. But at times, he is incredibly inaccurate. I mean, just maddeningly, frustratingly inaccurate. So is that because he's inherently inaccurate and occasionally makes a nice throw? Or is that because he is inherently accurate and occasionally his mechanics are bad? You have to decide that. But these are all big risks if you're taking a quarterback outside of that top tier and you're expecting him to start sometime in the next couple of years. Trevor Mass joins us, ESPN, talking a little NFL draft in that quarterback position. So, Trevor, the, the two guys that we haven't touched on yet, and again, they are a big topic of, of, of controversy here, is Mac Jones from Alabama and, of course, Justin Fields, Ohio State, by way of Georgia here. Uh, give me your thoughts about these two guys who do you think makes the better pro, and who gets drafted ahead of who here? Mac Jones will be a fantastic pro because he's got the inherent accuracy. His arm strength is enough. He gets grief for not, not having great arm strength, but it's enough. But especially he's got the mental side locked down. In the draft process, when he's on the board on these Zoom calls describing for NFL coaches what – passing concepts are like and concepts and why they're done the way that they're done, how things progress and why they progress the way they do defensive nuances and how the passing principles match up with those defensive nuances, those kinds of things. He's ready right now to step into the NFL classroom and continue his education. I mean, he's just fantastic. Uh, People say that he has such great protection at Alabama and so many outstanding receivers, including the Heisman Trophy winner, Devontae Smith this year, that, it was too easy for him. 
But if you just grade him on the plays where the receivers were covered, you'll find that he still dropped accurate passes. Just grade him on plays when he was uncomfortable in the pocket and had to move around inside the pocket because of blitzes, et cetera. You'll still find that he was very accurate. He was one of the best quarterbacks in all of college football against the blitz, and part of that is because of quick recognition, the ability to slide around in the pocket and gain space and deliver the ball. What he doesn't do is run the ball that well. I mean, people think he's a statue. He's not. But he's still not a guy that you're going to want to design a running offense around. And that's what may, may make him fall down a bit. So that's why I think that Justin Fields should be the pick for San Francisco at number three. Justin Fields, in terms of arm talent, can do everything that Mac Jones can do, except he's got a stronger arm. He can drive that ball better on intermediate throws, and he's got much more range to throw the ball deeper down the field. But he's got tremendous inherent accuracy. The question will be, how did he do on the board in the uh, interview Zoom calls uh, compared to Mac Jones? And I don't know the answer to that. I just don't know. But as far as I know from my people at Ohio State, he's a smart guy who had to process a lot of information in the Ryan Day offense, and he should transition very well to the NFL. They say he's a hard worker there. Okay. So that means that if I'm San Francisco, I'm wanting to take the more mobile guy if the passing side of it on both sides is at a high level. And so I think that Justin Fields has a better chance to have more splash plays and make something out of nothing more often than Mac Jones does at the next level. We've talked a lot about the quarterback positions. Who's the, uh, who are the best players in some of the other positions, whether they're skilled positions or maybe a lineman that could really be a difference maker for a team out there? Well, I think the, the most dynamic skilled player in terms of matchups is going to be Kyle Pitts, the tight end out of Florida. I mean, he runs about a 440 at 250 pounds tight end and just – unguardable at the college level in the SEC, and uh, fantastic hands. I mean, just so polished for a tight end. And the problem is, who do you match up with them on the defensive side of the ball? Then I think that the best receiver is probably Jamar Chase out of LSU. But the guy that I would take first, if it's me, is Jalen Waddell out of Alabama. Jalen Waddell, I think, would have won the Heisman Trophy over Devontae Smith if Waddell would have stayed healthy this last year. Played about half the season or so and ended up uh, having an ankle injury. But he is 4-2 fast. I mean, 4-2. The guy is blazing fast. I mean, Henry Ruggs. I mean, Raiders fans know all about him. There's a, a YouTube video of Henry Ruggs III and Jalen Waddle racing in a 40-yard dash. And it looks like Waddle beats him by a nose. Right? And so I think Waddle is a guy that – uh, has the ability to be that next Tyreek Hill more than anybody else in this draft. And so I would, I would take him first. From a lineman standpoint, it's Penesul. Penesul, left tackle out of Oregon. I mean, to me, he is every bit the playmaker that Kyle Pitts is, except he doesn't play a skill position. The ball won't be in his hands. But he's a guy that will lock down that left tackle position at all pro level for 10 years. And if I need a tackle, man, I take him anywhere in that draft. I wouldn't mind taking him number two or number three in the draft if I need to tackle and I'm drafting there. He's that good. Trevor, let's talk a little bit about uh, Urban Meyer at Jacksonville. He's going through his first NFL draft here, his first NFL season as, as a head coach here. What is And you saw, obviously, a lot of him in college. I mean, going back Utah, Florida, and, of course, Ohio State. Uh, talk about how is he going to adjust in the NFL 
I know he's got Daryl Bevel as his offensive coordinator. What do you think he will run offensively? And again, you know, drafting Trevor Lawrence more than likely with a first overall pick. Yeah, I think Urban Meyer, first of all, will be an outstanding NFL coach because really it comes down to leadership. There have been college coaches that have gone to the NFL and failed because they came in treating NFL full-grown players the way they treated 19-year-old freshmen coming into college, and you just can't do that. You can't tell an NFL guy, this is what you're going to do because I said so. You have to tell him this is what you're going to do, and here's why it needs to happen that way. And you need to sell it on them, and you need to listen to them and respect their opinion. Urban Meyer will do that. He, at Ohio State, had an unsurpassed leadership program. In other words, there were others at the top that were in that top tier, but none better than Ohio State. For example, about 20 times a year, he had his assistant coaches in some sort of leadership seminar or leadership training. That's about every two weeks. He had his assistant coaches in leadership training to not just be a natural leader, but learn the skill set of leaders, to learn techniques of leadership. And then those assistant coaches went into the the position room uh, meetings and taught those same leadership principles to their players. So you don't just have an organic leadership player rising up because he shows he can be a leader. You take those guys and teach them how to do it, teach them the techniques of it. And that leadership, that focus on leadership, will translate to the NFL level. Different way of applying it, but it'll translate. And then when you look at his creativity, he won't run his standard you know, Ohio State offense in the NFL. He understands that he needs to make a hybrid. But he's willing to do that, and he's willing to be out on the cutting edge of it. And I think, really, when you look at the the best combination of new school, college, read zones and RPOs and things like that, with combined with old school NFL concepts and put them together in one offense, Kansas City and Andy Reid, their head coach, is the – the one team that does it better than anybody else. And I think that Urban Meyer will see that, and he'll have sort of those combinations of college principles that put stress on defenses and make it easy for the quarterback to play fast when he's young, combined with more complex principles that the quarterback can grow into. This is something I'm interested to see in Arizona because the air raid has been working really well with Kyle Murray at quarterback. The question is now going forward from this season, will defenses – figure it out and force that offense to adjust into more complex um, protocols. And I think that they will have to do that. I think that Urban Meyer knows off the bat that he'll have to be ready to do that. And so these are reasons why from a a general 30,000 foot standpoint, I think Urban Meyer is going to be an outstanding NFL head coach. All right. He is uh, Trevor Maddich. Real quick, Trevor, uh, breaking news today that the, NFL owners have approved a series of new rules for this season, expanding the influence of replay officials. Replay officials sitting in the press box will have the authority to consult with refs uh, on specific aspects of a play when clear and obvious video evidence is present. Replay officials will not be able to throw flags or reverse calls on their own, but they can offer referees advice on what they've seen in the areas of possession, completed or intercepted passes, location of the ball, whether a player is down by contact, and coaches will not have to throw a challenge flag to uh, prompt that advice. So again, thoughts here on 
instant replay in the NFL. They're trying to fine-tune this thing and give the replay official not complete authority, but bringing him a little bit more into the mix with the referee. Okay, I've had a really busy day, so uh, I haven't seen that and I haven't read the details, so I'm going to rely on you. to. So how's that different from what it is now? Besides the quarter, the, the head coach throwing the, the flag, because the college system is that every play is replayed, every play. And if the replay officials need more time before the next snap, they'll buzz down and stop play. That's why in college games it's kind of weird when people say, well, why didn't they replay that? Why didn't the replay officials look at it? They did. And they decided they didn't need to stop play because they saw enough before the next snap. And so it sounds like they're sort of moving towards that. Is that about right? Yeah, they're just – before, the replay official didn't have really the authority to like you know kind of make that call. But now if he sees something, he can kind of buzz down or say, hey, wait a minute, you know, take a look at this. The referee is still going to have to get on the headset and, and, ma- and make the official decision. They're just trying – instead of making a big, bold move, they're just trying to ease it a little bit more. Like, okay, this guy's sitting in the booth. Uh, if he's noticed something, that maybe the referees didn't see, you know, you know, the incomplete, you know, ball possession, location, all that stuff. He he just has a little bit more authority, but not full authority. So again, it's 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 a minor move. I like that. Then I like that a lot because you know if 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 there's a call that's missed, and the coach of a team was already throwing his flag and he's lost his ability to challenge the next play. Right. Why is that good for the game that some egregiously missed call? is not corrected just because the coach already threw his flag. I get it that they're trying to not interfere with the flow of the game. And I get it that the NFL game moves a lot faster than college games, in part because you don't have nearly as many, you know, replays that take up a lot of time, right? But at the same time, we always go back to that Saints-Rams playoff game where the Rams defender committed egregious pass interference against the Saints receiver in a situation that ended up, because of the scenario of the game at the end of the game there, ended up costing the Saints probably a shot at the Super Bowl. And that was something that they want to avoid now. And they've been trying ever since that for the next several years to get it figured out and get it figured out how to do replay. But I think that is good as long as they don't go full college and start replaying every fourth play. That would be bad for the NFL. All right, brother. Hey, we'll let you uh, get back to your homework. Hopefully, I know you're going to be really busy next week. If we could tap into you actually before the draft, if you got some time, that would be uh, fantastic as well, too. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to. And actually, I'll, I'll tease it right now real quick that uh, there's a lot of players in this draft that for a variety of reasons are going to fall below the level of their talent to a lower position where they could be picked. And some of those, I think, might be pretty good pretty good steals for the Raiders if they do their homework on them. So I think there's some guys in the middle and late rounds that could be really intriguing for off-the-books reasons. Great stuff, my man. All right, Trevor, appreciate you as always. We'll talk to you next week, my friend. Good. All right, thanks, DC. All right, there you go. And uh, let him get back uh, to his homework. No one does it like Trevor Maddich breaking it all down for you just like that. Chuck Esposito is going to join us coming up uh, on the other side of the hour. Plus, we got some VGK stuff, LeBron James, Major League Baseball wild game yesterday. We'll dive into that as well. T.C. Martin, Ballpark Frank with you on this thunderous Thursday. <laughs>